Maybe this has happened to you before. You've been outside of the county of Broome County, and someone has said to you, where are you from? And you say, I'm from New York. They go, oh, New York, do you live near the Statue of Liberty? And you say, no, not that New York. I'm from Binghamton, New York. We have speedies. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they just, where's Binghamton? Can any good thing come out of Binghamton? Well, maybe, maybe you wonder that, but you know, they said the same. That's something they quoted about. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And as we look at that, um, we're working through the Gospel of John. We looked at, we took a look at the introduction to Jesus Christ as the Word of God. Then we heard a testimony from John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am here to testify that this man is the Son of God. And then we met and were introduced to the first five disciples. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John the Apostle. And so we were introduced to those guys. Last week, you remember, we had all those tombstones up on the the screen and we said what would we put on Andrew's tombstone and Peter's tombstone and Philip's tombstone and so we learned some things about those guys and so today what we're going to do is we're going to begin looking at seven signs that Jesus is the Christ the son of God so the next thing in our outline of the gospel of John is that Jesus turns water into wine John chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. We just read it a moment ago, and it starts off there. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the first point that I've got is that the place of Jesus' first miracle was Cana of Galilee, an insignificant village. You know what I mean? You understand when I said, you know, Bingham, you're from Binghamton, New York, and people look at like, where in the world is Binghamton, New York? You say you're from New York and everybody assumes that you're from New York City. But the truth is, is that you're from upstate. And quite frankly, I'm sorry, but I would rather be from Binghamton than New York City. And, and <laughs> well, I guess a few people agree with me there on that one. But um, it's important that we know that Jesus' first miracle, the thing that as he got started in his ministry, he didn't choose to go to Rome. He didn't choose to have his first miracle be in Jerusalem. He, he wasn't going to, he chose an insignificant village. He didn't need fame. He came to save. He didn't need people to stand up and praise him. Because he's deserving of that. Not by going to some special city. But he's deserving of that because he's the creator of the universe. He's our savior. And he has earned his, the glory that he is due. And so we get to Mark chapter 10. In verse 45. 
Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When Jesus Christ, I, I just think it's it's the greatest example of emptying someone's self and, and coming to a person and being able, coming to a lost and dying world and being able to pour out yourself for someone who doesn't even deserve it. We, we were, we have the three Heath brothers coming this week, and um, we're trying to. Andrea was asking me, you know, what can we do to make to make them feel right at home when they get here, and what meal can we make them? And and the school is asking me the same thing, and and so I've kind of been emailing their dad back and forth as, um, here and talking to them, and they just. They just want to serve, and they just want to come. And these boys, they I was listening to them. Uh, they sang on the number one stage down there in uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, at the main stage. And they were being interviewed afterwards. And they said, they said we, we get the opportunity to go into public high schools. We've been in 26 of them already this year. And we get to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like we, we get that privilege. And they're they're not looking for fame. They want to share the gospel. That's the group that's coming here. And we were kind of, we were talking about how they're going in teachers' devotions. I was talking about how they're going to come to the school and sing to the kids to try and get the kids and the parents to come here to the concert on, on Friday night. And um, one of the teachers at the school, Mr. Churchward, he said. We're going to have to get these boys security because if we don't, uh, Grace Penfield, another one of our teachers, she's going to go up front and she's going to be pinching these boys on the cheek and, and you know, grabbing them right on the cheek and, like, give them a kiss, these little 16 or 18-year-old boys. And, and that's not these boys' point. You know, if they're good singers and they wanted that fame and fortune and stuff, they could chase after the world. And the pleasures and the lust and the desires of the world, the fame, the fortune. But that's not what they want. They'd be willing to go to a little place like Port Crane or into a public school to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians, we need to be doing the same thing. So they get to, in John chapter 2, Jesus comes to a wedding. In Cana of Galilee. And you might say, where is Cana of Galilee? I drew, drew, drew an arrow. It's right there. See it? Uh, maybe you can't, but it's right there. It's a little dot right next to that big yellow arrow. Cana of Galilee. An insignificant little village. But if I were to look, and I don't know if you can see, I can read the word. On, right underneath it says Nazareth. So it's quite close to Jesus' hometown. So these probably would have been acquaintances of Jesus Christ. And when they get to a wedding, they have a problem. Because they're going to have a feast, they're going to have a meal. And when there's the hustle and bustle of trying to get the meals around, you think you can plan and you can prepare and you can get things ready. But often something goes wrong. And in this case, something went wrong. 
They had a problem. They had no wine at the wedding. They had no wine at the wedding. I'm just going to say this right at the beginning of this. I personally um, believe that in this case, when we look at this, that we are not talking about something alcoholic. Okay? And I'm not here to argue that point, but that's my personal uh, belief in this situation is that this was a, a grape juice, the fruit of the vine. And that's my own personal opinion. I'll put that out there at the beginning of this before we even get started. But mom comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. They're out of juice at this wedding. And Jesus, you need to know that. And then, then look at this. Read this. Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And a lot of people focus on that. You know, Jesus, Jesus answered here. Has a, I like to focus on that part. My hour has not yet come. But I know a lot of people, they pay pretty close attention to the first part of that, that quote. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And I, I can imagine that if I went up to my mom, if my mom said, Scott, there's a problem. And if I were to say, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? I don't care how old I was. I would have been talking to my father. You, you know? <laughs> but we're reading the Bible, aren't we? And we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I personally, as I read this, I don't take, I don't put that into 21st century, my relationship with my mom. I'm talking about a man that was very aware that he was the son of God. And I'm also talking about something that is going to play a big difference in what's going to carry on for 2,000 years. Because... I watched, I, I was just filling out something on the calendar in the boardroom over there. And as I was filling that out, in December, there's this day, the Virgin of Guadalupe Day. Maybe you have no idea what that is. Um, every time the Nevins come here, they talk about the Virgin of Guadalupe and how big a deal that is in Mexico. And I can, I've been in San Jose during Holy Week, where I've watched as people have crawled for miles to lay their prayers at the feet of a statue of the Virgin Mary, where some vision took place. And I watched that happen. And Jesus knew that right from the beginning, his authority as the Son of God had to be established for the church. And I also don't think that I can see any disrespect here. His focus was on the fact that his hour had not yet come. And also, I watch and Jesus', uh, Jesus Mother Mary comes and says, Jesus, there's a problem. And he says this thing, which we might take as very disrespectful, but then you watch and look at it in context. 
Because right after Jesus says that, he goes and he starts turning the water into wine. It's not like Mary talked back to him. I I tell you what. um, When I was a young man, me and my mother used to argue and go back. She would, you know, when I'd get home from Bible school, my mother would have something she'd want to talk to me about or something that she'd disagree with me. And she'd say something and I'd say what I thought, my opinion. And she'd carry on. And my mother wasn't one to drop things. And she'd just, she'd say it again and again and again and again. Just, and it didn't matter how many times I'd say that I didn't. And so eventually there came a point where I just, I think for the last 10 years, I'd just say, even if I disagree with my mom, I'm going to nod my head because I know there's no sense in fighting with her, no sense in arguing with her. If it's a small thing, especially. Not not a big... My brother never learned that lesson. <laughs> but, it, but anyways, as I look at this, I, I know that Jesus, he goes and he helps out his mom, mother. And the problem at this wedding. This is not something where Jesus is being disrespectful to Mary. I don't see any sign of disrespect. It may have established his place as the son of God, but at the same time as a son who carried out his mother's wishes. And I see both things, but I really focus on that part that says, my hour has not yet come. After Jesus listens and he's obedient to his mother, we have to pay attention. Our focus should be on that phrase, my hour has not yet come. Because you see here, Jesus, when he came to this earth, he had a mission. And his mission was the cross. The shedding of his blood for the sins of mankind. And as I look and as I read, I find that in the book of John, there's that phrase is used eight times about Jesus' hour and a focus on his hour. So in 21 chapters, eight times, there's a focus on Jesus' hour. So it's, so it's important to the book for, in order for us to understand the book. So we think about the cross. You read the Old Testament. And the Old Testament points to the cross. Points to the cross. You read the New Testament. And it points back to the cross. The focal point in human history is the cross. Is the cross. Is the cross. I like to think of things in terms of math, and I know that doesn't, but I, that's the way I like to think about terms of things. And I'm teaching kids how to use mathematical equations to graph functions right now. And there's always this thing called the vertex, or, or you could talk about focal points. And just changing a few numbers can move. We call it translating. That 
focal, the, the point that is so, so important, whether it be an exponential equation or a greatest integer equation or sine or cosine, there's that focal point. Once you know how to move that focal point, you understand everything about the mathematical function. And so maybe you go, I just tuned you out. Come, come back to me for just a moment. Once you understand that one key component, all the rest of it begins to, to illuminate. And if you think about the Bible as a whole, it points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And once you understand that, everything else becomes clear. You begin to look at the Old Testament and, and you see these weird things about sacrificing. And all of a sudden it begins to make sense because it looks forward to the Savior. You look at King David and his life and the things that he went through. And you begin to understand the point that Jesus Christ, the Savior who was crucified, is a big deal. You look at the future. You look at the rapture of the church. You look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, the prophecies. That if you understand them in light of the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ, because if you take the cross away, you take the resurrection and the blood of Jesus Christ away, You know, this is just a bunch of nice stories. But if we have the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ, and his resurrection from the dead, this book becomes alive. And a relationship with God is eternal. And we can go to heaven and be with our Savior forever. And he wants to start that relationship with you today. And that hour of our salvation when it was purchased means so, so much. Sometimes in this book, the Bible says that Jesus escapes capture until his hour has come. They'll come and try to arrest Jesus, but it's not his hour, so that's not what's going on. There are other times in the Bible where, where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And it's a big dramatic shift when Jesus finally says, my hour has arrived. And the whole plot of the book just takes on a whole new look. And we begin to look at this thing and it gets exciting and, and it's alive. And Jesus Christ, the moment, the purpose, it's a big deal. And I've always compared this to, and I've, I've looked at this, there was a space project. And I can only imagine being a part of this space project. But over 30 years ago, a group of men sat down and they said, we want to take a look at outer space. We want to look at, at Jupiter. We want to look at Pluto. And we want to look at, at deep space. And so we want to send a satellite out there. Um, they just posted some images from this satellite. I've got it up here. It's called the New Horizons Project. They just took some uh, images of some things that are well beyond Pluto. And I was looking at some of them just this last week. And... There is a certain size at which an object in space, it has to become a sphere. And if it's smaller than that, it doesn't have to take this 
base of the, the shape of a sphere. As a matter of fact, um, saw one this week that kind of looked more like a snowman. And it just is not that big where it has to be a sphere. But they, they over 30 years ago, they launched this ship into outer space. With the, I, they began work on the project. And then about 15 years ago, they launched this into space to take pictures of Pluto. And you know how long it took a, a spaceship that was going, or a satellite that was going um, tens of thousands of miles per hour to go flying past Pluto and take those pictures? And then the images don't get to come back to you right away. So could you imagine somebody who started a project 30 years ago to take pictures of Pluto? And it's only going to take pictures of Pluto for a short amount of time. And then you've got to wait for those pictures to come back. Could you imagine if you started that project 30 years ago, and here it is, it's going to go fly past Pluto and take these pictures, like, and you're just waiting for to get those pictures back. I'd be like, oh, can't wait to get those pictures. And what would happen if one thing went wrong? No pictures, right? You'd just be like, ah! And, and I picture Jesus' hour. Now, I'm sure that he wasn't worried because he's God. He's all-powerful. And he's in control and he's sovereign. But for him, as he's sitting here and he's talking to Mary, he says the focus is the cross. And even here, right at the beginning, he's like, my hour is the is the cross turning water into wine we think that's neat it's a big thing that jesus did it's important it, it points to him as the creator god but still the focus is the cross jesus is aware of his hour and it's an evidence of his messiahship that he is the christ we talk about how do we know that jesus is the crowd Christ. How do we know that he's the son of God? Well, from the beginning, he's talking about the cross and through his ministry, he's talking about his death, burial and resurrection. He's very aware of who he is, what his mission is and what he's here to accomplish. And from the beginning, that's what he's out to do. And that's what he's here to do. And that's what he wants to do. So then this obedient son, he begins to perform this miracle. And in verse 6, it says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Cross them out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So what happens here is Jesus has six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So that means the lowest amount of water that Jesus could have turned into wine would have been 120. The most water that he could have turned into wine was 180. And I, I just, I picture that. I like to think of it in terms that I can think of. I've got a 55-gallon fish tank at home. That's like filling three of those. That's a lot of grape juice. That's a lot of wine that Jesus turned from water, turned water into wine. That's a lot. And so there's these six pots. And Jesus got them there and he says, okay, dip in and go take it to the master of the feast. So not only was the quantity 120 to 180 
80 gallons, I'd also like us to look at the quality. The quality was the best. Jesus provides. He does miracles. And he does things the best. And I think about that over and over and over again. God provides, and when he does, he provides the best. And you might think, okay, God, um, and this is the way I think about this is, God, I need, I need, and you're God that provides you, the great creator God, and I, I need a car. I want a Lamborghini. And, and I think to myself, everything I know about the context of the Bible. We were just reading this morning in the book of James about how if you live life of luxury and pleasure, of fattened with those things, it stands in condemnation against you. And so if you say to God, God, you know what? I need a car and I need the best. Give me a Lamborghini. If God just handed out Lamborghinis to every Christian and stuff, just think about what you would probably, that thing's probably going to drive, and I use my word carefully there, drive you away from a relationship with God. Is that the best I'm asking a serious question. If that, if something like that is going to drive you away from God, is that the best? No. But then I have conversations with people. And they say, I needed a vehicle. And I needed, I needed one. And this is the money that I had. And I prayed about it. And God sent me one that was more than I could have even imagined. And God provided the person with the vehicle at the right time that my budget didn't afford, but it worked. And it was better than I could have ever imagined. That was the best vehicle I've ever had. What does God provide? Best. How many of you in your life, and this is a rhetorical question, but... When you've needed something and you pray to God and you have that relationship with God and you reach out to him in just the right time, in just the right way. God's provided you the best. I just I like to give testimony to God. And one of the things that I think about is that. Is that we needed a refrigerator the last year. We had a budget. And I was looking here and I'm looking at our electric bill. I'm going. Our electric bill is just going up and up and up. And the only thing I can think of is that, like, our refrigerator just seems to be, like, running, like, all the time. So we prayed about it. And Michelle and I went to the store. And here was a refrigerator that the last one in the store had. And it was in our budget. And I looked at what the price would be. And it was three times our budget. But it was less than our budget. And God has walking. I don't know why God has walking. And we bought it, we took it home, we plugged it in, and it was more than what we ever could have imagined. And God provided the be the, the best. And two months later, when I got the electric bill, thank you, Lord. And I said, if I have this refrigerator for a little while, it'll pay for itself. 
Our God is awesome. He is amazing and he provides the best. Maybe you say, oh, God's never given anything to me. Get a relationship with him. Pray. Read the Bible. Come to church. Talk to him. Tell him your requests. He'll provide you the best. It doesn't mean you won't have problems. It doesn't mean you won't have a car that won't break down on you. But God provides. And God's going to give you things. And all those things, they're going to be to drive you, whether it be the trials of life, the blessings of life. They're going to drive you to a relationship with Jesus Christ that lasts for all of eternity. There's no greater life. I put a little quote here on the, on the board from St. Augustine. He who made the wine at the wedding feast does the same thing every year in the vines as the water which the servants put into the water pots was turned into wine by the Lord. So that which the clouds pour down is turned into wine by that same Lord. Our God is the author of creation. And God is the God who out there works miracles every day. Look, it's a beautiful day. I love October in Binghamton. Even though nothing good can come out of Binghamton. It's beautiful. I love the leaves. And that same God shows his handiwork each and every day. And I am so thankful for that. And even if I've never seen God turn five, three fish tanks worth of water into wine at a wedding. I've never seen Jesus Christ come and do that. I see a God who does that each and every year. On the vine, and his creation stands as testimony that our God is powerful, he's amazing, he's alive, and he's at work. Amen. There are seven miracles in the Gospel of John, seven signs that Jesus is the Christ. I don't think that is there by accident, but I want to tell you some things about these signs. The first thing is that with each sign that Jesus is the Christ that we find in the Gospel of John, each one gets more grand, bigger. Now, I can't I can't change water into wine. Only God can do that. And that's a big deal, so I'm not putting down this miracle. But if I were to compare water turning into wine to feeding 5,000 people, I think the feeding 5,000 people, in my mind, from my perception, is more grand. Each one of these signs that are specifically chosen to point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. They get more grand. Each one gets more public. As we look here at this one in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and as I see this, Jesus turns water into wine. The, the master of the feast, the wedding planner here, he takes a sip and he goes, oh, this is really good. Most people, they, they put the best out the beginning and they save the worst quality for the end. But this stuff is the best. And so this guy doesn't even know where this is going on. This is all behind the scenes. Those servants and disciples, I, from reading this, I get that they're the only ones that really even know what's going on. But then there's more publicity about Jesus Christ and what he's doing. And, and there's this growing Grandness of the miracles. There's this growing publicity of the miracles. 
But with that also comes the growing controversy. More controversial. And each and every one, there, now we see that, that with Jesus performing a miracle, there are some other people that are going to stand up against him. And, and I find that to be very, very interesting. That that's the way the miracles work and the things that happen. And so I've got a list. And I'm going to put this list up all through the book. Sign one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And we're just going to add one to our list each time. So right now we got sign number one, John 2.11. Jesus turns water into wine. All these signs have a point. They have a purpose, and that purpose, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God put into John's mind. You choose these seven miracles, you write their story, you tell them, and, and they will be used as evidence to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And as we look at these, these things will stand for all of eternity to prove to everyone across the whole world from before creation, from the time of creation, Till the time of the end that Jesus was God's son. Today, we, we again, this is something we talked about in Sunday school class. Someone in Africa who has never had a copy of the Bible. Are they without excuse that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that God is the creator of the world? And do they stand guilty before God? Yes. Because so do people before the cross. They were all responsible for their relationship with God Almighty. And some people like Abraham chose to be faithful to God. And, and, and they believed in God. And it was counted unto them for righteousness. And the same is true today. And so God gives us this first sign. He turns water into wine. And it has a very, very important purpose. To manifest the glory of God. To prove that Jesus was the great creator God. The result of this miracle is that the disciples believed in Jesus. It says there, and, and this is our verse of the month. It says, this beginning of signs that Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I chose that verse for important reason, as our verse of the month. Because I thought about it as I was putting things together, I thought Cana is a very insignificant place. Just like living in Binghamton. And in the midst of that insignificant place, God did miracles. He turned water into wine. Many, he did many miracles in Galilee. And it manifested God's glory. And God is still doing miracles today, even in a place like Binghamton, New York. And God is still at work, and He's still on His throne. And even in a place like that, we can still, still see God working. God's never going to stop working. And He's manifesting His glory. But we still have the same responsibility that the disciples had, and that is to believe in Him.
I'd like us to think about John 1, 12 and the ramifications that it has for this verse here and for you in your life. I'd like you to think about John 20, 31 and the ramifications that it has for this verse and for your life. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he's given you the power, the right, the privilege to become his child and to have eternal life in his name. John 20, 31. But these are written, these signs, these seven signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so I look at this. I see there's the disciples of Jesus. They see the miracle that he's done. And they believe. That's a, like reading this book. You should get to this point and you should go, oh, oh. They believe. That's a big deal. terrible truth is that even with all these signs some people's hearts will harden and they'll never believe I believe that the point of this miracle is that Jesus is the author of creation he is the same God that we read about in Psalm 19 verse 1 the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Jesus is in control of his creation because he's the creator and the sustainer of it. He can turn water into wine whenever he wants to. He can do miracles at any moment. He is the God of all creation. And we have a responsibility to believe in that miracle working God. Don't be the person whose heart is hardened, will not believe, but believe in Jesus Christ, the miracle working God who came to this earth to die on the cross for your sins. And He left us with these signs and these wonders. To prove that he was God. And he's asked you. He said. Will you believe. Will you believe. In Jesus Christ. The son of God. He'll get you an eternal relationship. It will last forever. A heavenly home. Salvation from your sins. And most importantly. That relationship with Jesus Christ. Just think about those words. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son that turned water into wine in a little town in Cana of Galilee. And Lord, today maybe there's somebody here who needs a miracle. They need water turned into wine in their life. Lord, I pray that you might help them to believe in you. 
and have that relationship with you. And to find that you have the power to forgive sins. That you have the power to change their life for all of eternity. And God, you have the power to help them today. Lord, I thank you that you came to seek and to save those who were lost. To be a servant of men. Help us to live for you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.